Hello and welcome to the Red Star Podcast with William Flores and Alexander Watling, here to democratize the economy, your workplace, and put the power in the hands of the people. This week, we discuss what the hell happened to Mac or Mountain Equipment Co-op. So what the hell happened to Mountain Equipment Co-op, Alexander? Where do we begin? Uh, That's a great question. Um, Why don't we start with what it is and go from there? Mountain Equipment Co-op was a consumer co-op that existed, initially born in BC. It was set up uh, by a few people who very much enjoyed the outdoors. And this was in the mid-70s, had a hard time finding mountain equipment that they can purchase at reasonable prices to get out into the outdoors. So what they did, got together with a few of their buddies and started buying uh, mountain equipment uh, in larger quantities to distribute amongst themselves. Uh, and that way they could take advantage of better prices uh, than they could take advantage of if they went and purchased it individually. And that was how Mountain Equipment Co-op was born. As the story goes, they were going south of the border. They had to go down to the United States to buy all their stuff. And uh, I actually watched one of their videos earlier today that was talking about how they would use their tent for a couple of days before coming back across into Canada to make the tent look used so they weren't just smuggling tents over the border. Which, yeah, I mean, it seems to me like, you know, there was this real grassroots element to it. You know, it was just kind of like, hey, some we need some tents for our buddies. And here we're going to build this thing and, and we're going to build it into a co-op setting. What's happening this week with Mac? Uh, it, Mac, Mac has recently been sold. Uh, this is why we're taking on this topic of what the hell happened to Mac. Uh, because in the mid-70s, Mac started as a Canadian cooperative and it recently got sold, or rather the sale was approved. The cooperative is being sold to a financial firm from Los Angeles. And there was a massive public uproar about the sale. The sale has gone through uh, this week, I believe. Uh, I believe this is what you're referring to. Uh, This week, all of the assets are finally being transferred. The sale is closing, essentially. And all the assets are being transferred to its new new owner, uh, which is a financial firm from the U.S. And a big reason why the customers or, well, the members particularly are not happy with all of this is because a number of reasons, one of them being that members were not consulted. Uh, but number two is that now Mountain Equipment Co-op, um, MEC as it came to be known, is now just another retailer. Uh, in the same way, <laughs> in the same way every other retailer uh, is, uh, and not just any other retailer, but yet again, another retailer from the U.S. You know, I've explained the fact that members were not consulted in the process of selling, but what, what do you, what else do you think contributed to the public backlash against the sale of Mech? So Mech is amongst some of the top respected brands in Canada, one of them being CAA. Uh, another one being Costco, but but Mac is really up there. And I, I spoke with a friend of mine who is pretty far along on the right side of the political spectrum, who believes the free markets will save everything, and he loves Mac. And I said, "Well, hold up, like why? Why do you why do you like Mac?" And he said, "Well, 
you know, it's great product for great prices and this and that, but there's also a transparency and accountability to them in a way that I haven't seen from, say, Canadian Tire, for instance. And I thought, well, that's interesting. So I think that there was a great deal of brand loyalty. I think that it represents this mutual interest in the outdoors, that the outdoors are intrinsically good, that the woods are not uh, for exploitation, or, or at least maybe not for everybody. I think, I think everybody comes to Mech in a very different capacity. But I do think that a large part of it is enjoying the outdoors for the sake of the outdoors. There is a rejuvenating element to that. And I don't know many people who go to Mech and think, yeah, and tear, tear down the woods and poison the rivers. Like, that's not a thing that I think resonates with people. And so it being a co-op, being for the people, really resonated with that messaging you know i mean it was always and to me what always struck me whenever i went into mech it was very open it was very airy very a great deal of natural light it was very breathable which i think really reflected you know kind of the, the marketing that they'd employed i i also i also was a member uh, every time i walked into mech uh, absolutely every especially uh, so i'm in toronto and our King Street store at the time, uh, the entrance to the store, at least the facade of the store, was like a cabin, uh, log cabin. Uh, so every time I walked into Mech, uh, it brought back memories of me as a child in the outdoors. Uh, you know, in, in um, especially in autumn, when there's a layer of old, recently crisp fallen leaves in the ground, uh, and these memories always came back and, and, and Mac was really good at playing that, I would say. You know, their logo for the longest of time, their logo was essentially a, a mountain, uh, which goes well with the name, but it, it always brings back the nostalgia of walking the outdoors, of being outdoors, of, uh, and so there was, um, you know, aside from being a co-op and aside from being good mountain equipment, uh, or good product, I mean, the product was really reliable for sure. I'm not taking away from that. But aside from that, uh, Mech was also representative of, for a lot of us, it was representative of memories from years gone by. And so selling this off to, you know, a financial company from, from California represented not just the sale of a retailer or, or another institution, but it represented, uh, to a small degree perhaps, but it represented the sale, the financialization of all of those memories, which I'm sure hit a, a, a point for a lot of people. Uh, and so that, you know, that contributed to the, um, to the backlash as well. Uh, what kind of co-op was Mac, and how did we get to this point of it being sold off if it's a co-op that is owned by the members? Right. So this has been this has been I think a this has been a large part of contention in this this whole discussion. As much as the members are owners of Mac, uh, much of the decision making, uh, virtually all of the decision making, was put on their board. Was was all the decision making was was elevated to the board level and from where i sit it looks to be like it had been corporatized um, that the members were i think in many regards taken for granted were sidelined in those discussions about 
whether to expand or not, um, what democratizing the workplace looked like. I saw I saw one of their reports, one of their transparency reports from a couple of years ago that was talking about how their staff are making, uh, every, you know, in every province that it, that Mech was in, all of the staff were making over minimum wage. It was very marginally over minimum wage. Mm. But there was still this idea that it was a very democratized place, a very warm and inviting place, and this and that, and and I, and I don't doubt that, and I also understand that, like, it, it is it is challenging to scale up when your competitors are. It, it's rushed to the bottom. I get. Mm-hmm. I, I understand that that is that is a challenge. However, who are you doing the work for, and whatever else? And that has been one of the major criticisms too, is that that they had accepted funds from players in the field who perhaps had ulterior motives than having just a really good place to buy camping equipment. That it was not with the best interest in mind of the members or the employees that Mech was scaling up so much and so fast. Mm. Uh, see, that's that's perhaps um, the biggest point where I disagree with, with all of this. Uh, I don't think... Um, yes... The scaling up and the decision making, or, or or how we got to this point, you know, the decisions that were made that led us to this, uh, I don't think are the reason we got to this point. Um, I think the reason we got to this point starts on day one of the cooperative, which is the fact that it's a consumer cooperative. It is members coming together to buy product. Um, and 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 I I raise that point uh, based on something you said, which uh, you know a large part of uh, the existence for this podcast is democ- to talk about how we can democratize the workplace. Uh, but Mac, having started as a consumer co-op, was not a democratic workplace because the people who worked at the cooperative. Uh, only for a small period of time in the existence of the co-op were they the members also making decisions at the at the level of the board. As soon as you begin scaling up a, a cooperative, it is more complicated for all of the workers, all of the members, to be involved on the day-to-day decision-making uh, it, at the board. So what happens is that we delegate decision-making to the board we delegate decision making to people who we believe is going to represent but then decisions are no longer made at the workplace decisions are made at the board meeting in a worker co-op decisions will always remain at the workplace um, because workers being themselves the board of directors at every organization have to be the members deciding on the day-to-day uh, based on the point that you mentioned about democratizing the workplace, because a lot of, um, you know, the, the existence for this podcast is to discuss democratizing the workplace. A mountain Equipment Co-op, being a consumer co-op, uh, was set up in a way where it would be difficult for it to scale up. Uh, it had 20-odd stores across the country, and therefore decision-making was delegated to the board. Uh, over 5 million members in its lifetime. And so, of course, the 5 million members were not going to be involved in the decision-making. And so the question arises, how do you ensure that the cooperative remains democratic if decision-making is being delegated to a small group of people? 
And I think that is where Mountain Equipment Co-op, which was a decision on how it was founded originally, uh, that's where I think Mountain Equipment Co-op as a cooperative, you know, I think this is where that problem comes from. Not so much the decisions in, I mean, those were problematic and we can get to that in a minute, um, but not so much the decisions in the last five to 10 years. But what were some of those decisions in the last 10 years based on what you've seen? From what I've seen, some of the major decisions that were that were made that led to the scenario that MEC is currently in was a lack of transparency of decision making, the corporatization of the board, you know, lack of worker representation, those kinds of things. I, I, I do have to wonder, and, and maybe we could get to this a little bit later, but could you see a, a mixed model that is both a worker and member-based co-op model? I think that is an excellent question, and it goes back uh, to what I was uh, saying um, a minute ago in terms of how you set up uh, your co-op. And I think actually you mentioned this in, in our last episode about what worker co-ops are. What's most important in a, in a co-op, uh, okay, perhaps not most important, but one of the key decisions at the very foundation of the cooperative are the govern is the governing structure, the governing document, um, you know what the corporate world calls the bylaws. Uh, to answer your question, is there the possibility of a mixed model? Yes. Uh, so a cooperative can have multiple classes of stakeholders, or what we call also in the corporate world shareholders. Uh, we can have two class of members, and this is just an example. I'm not saying this is what Mac should have done, or I'm not prescribing anything for Mac. They have a team of lawyers who are experts at this. Uh, this is just my opinion on the matter. Uh, it could have been uh, something where each worker at each store was also a decision maker, and then a second class of member, which is all, you know, the 5 million of us who took out a membership, we delegate who goes on the board, but then the members also have their own delegate to the board that represents the interests specifically of the workers. That is one of the biggest pieces that I think was missing, is that representation on the board from the workers. Uh, because it was a single model where anyone could be a member, my interests, uh, although they may align with the cooperative interests, uh, don't necessarily align with the interest of the worker because I have no skin in the game. I don't work uh, at, at Mac, never did. Uh, you know, I, I didn't understand the mechanics of Mac the way a worker does. However, the workers had no representation on the board that was outside of the general membership. So let me ask then, uh, do you think that this situation could have been avoided with a workers' union? Why or why not? No, I don't think this situation could have been avoided. I think it could have been uh, certainly pushed back against. Uh, I, I, I do think a workers' union would have helped uh, for the workers to have some degree of representation in, in the process. Although ultimately, I don't think this could have been prevented by a workers' union. The reason for that, the union, the workers' union, is essentially a mechanism that exists 
for workers to combine their voice and uh, make requests or make demands as a collective. And so they can say, for example, you're not going to sell this because we the workers disagree. The workers don't have any financial uh, backing, if you will. They don't have the required funds to go to a court and say, whoa, we're not going to sell Mac because we the workers disagree and therefore we're going to take over. They don't have that. That's why if, if we do talk about a mixed model, the worker co-op model has to be the way to go because the workers as owners of the cooperative can make the decision as to whether this is going to be sold or not. Uh, the, if the decision is made to sell the business at the board of directors, the union can only push back on that decision that is made. But it cannot, or it does not, typically. Uh, different ways to organize a board. Uh, it can't tell you the way that board was organized and who each member was and what their interests. You know, I can't tell you what was represented at that board because I don't know any of the board members. Uh, but there was no worker interest at the board. There was no worker who was on the board. And for the most part, the worker union doesn't give you representation on the board. Unless you're at the board of directors when that decision to sell is being made, there's really no way around it. Um, and so to answer, long answer to your question, but can a, can a union have made a difference? I don't think so. Okay. I don't think so. Uh, although, you know, that's not to say unions don't play any role in any of this. I think it's very important for workers to unionize, uh, you know, and, and unionize. If, if you're not already one, talk to your colleagues. Uh, it's not a lengthy process. The most important thing you can do is talk to your colleagues about uh, coming together and um, unionizing, uh, about using your collective voice, your collective efforts to push back against some of those decisions that happen on the board uh, to ask for greater worker representation in some of those decisions. But one of the best things you can do is talk to your colleagues, talk to your colleagues about unionizing, please. Have you spoken to your colleagues about unionizing? At every job I've ever been at. Excellent. Thank you. <laughs> Likewise. So, uh, let's, let's, let's take a step back for a second. And I want to ask, when was the last time you shopped at Mech? What was that experience like? Great question. I was buying a um, uh, messenger bag. The experience, it, it, I mean, a lot of it goes into the experience. So the workers certainly seemed to care about being there more than most typical retail workers. Uh, you know, and this is not a critique of retail workers in general. Uh, but I think for the most part, uh, those of us who have worked retail are there because it's it's a job to get us through school, right? It's uh, you know, it's 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 a sales job. It's a cashier's job. Um, last episode, we were talking about essential workers at the grocery store. You know, it's a job. For them, uh, the feeling that I got was that it's more than just a job. Uh, there's a there's a true sense of passion that goes into it. Um, and it's important that I speak in the present tense because they're still there, these workers. Well, unfortunately, uh, the projections are putting it at about 15% of currently employed mech staff will be let go. 
which is which is a shame. I'm I'm at a loss for. I mean, I pause for a minute uh, when when hearing that statistic because it's it's a it's a big chunk. Uh, they had when they had purchased the co-op, they did not. Or what they had said is they were going to minimize losses, uh, and fifteen percent of the workforce is a big chunk. Uh, I don't think they had much of a choice. Uh, I I went deeper i went deep uh, deeper than most people do uh, just because i'm a numbers nerd like this uh, but i went deep into looking at their financial statements uh, over the last few years and uh, mac was in a pretty difficult position financially uh, a lot of the a lot of the chatter on the interwebs was about the um, the assets that sat in the book uh, 300 million in assets so how how could a business that had three hundred million three hundred million in assets be bankrupt or go bankrupt? Uh, and that is that is part of the problem. Uh, a lot of the assets that the company held were um, hard assets, uh, land, uh, building, inventory, computer equipment, furniture, and these are things you can't sell in order to pay employees. You can sell the furniture to pay an employee, but then the employee has no furniture to put the product, you know, and it, so it, it, the corporation was in a difficult position financially, which is why it got to this point. A, a lot of the conversation of the financial challenges that Meg had do stem, as you correctly pointed out earlier, from its expansion. Uh, it expanded too quickly. It expanded way too quickly. Well, and one of the one of the other criticisms that I've seen about Mac isn't just that it expanded locations, but also expanded the departments. That they were trying to do a little bit of everything, whereas before it was if you want a sleeping bag, a tent, and camping equipment, that's where you go. And then they included a whole bunch of bicycles, and they included climbing equipment, and they included outerwear and a ton of clothes. I mean, the old location I remember on on King Street, the top floor was almost entirely clothing mm -hmm. and, and you know in new locations and very fancy uh, locations at that um, at a time when I feel a lot of people are moving away from retail uh, in brick and mortar retail and I mean now they're saying that in amongst COVID uh, no business has done better than Amazon you know mm -hmm. with online sales now that has been uh, that is a process that has been sped up by COVID but this is not a new phenomenon. Online sales have been been, you know, dunking on brick and mortar in many regards for a number of years. So I have to wonder too, in that regard, like, is it? I mean, okay, so they had all these assets, but also why? Uh, could they have done more? And I and I'm 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 I'll be the first to say that one of the big perks of going to Mac, for me was being able to touch and feel and see the things I want to buy that I feel like I need to be able to see and touch and feel to, 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 to know whether or not I want it. The last time I went shopping at Mech, I ended up having to... Uh, so uh, about um, nine months ago, I guess, just my little pocket knife had broken, and I needed a new one. And I didn't want to buy one online because I wasn't, I wasn't able to see how it felt in my hand. And I went to Mech because that was a thing that I really wanted. I want a knife that feels sturdy and reliable. And I was very fortunate that I could go to Mac and do that. 
But at the same time, I'm in that location and thinking to myself, and I consider myself, you know, I, I enjoy camping and I enjoy going into the outdoors. How much of this stuff do I, do I not? And will I never give a damn about? Right. And if I'm not the target market, I mean, I, and I'm not, I'm not, uh, an extreme enthusiast. I am also a cyclist and you know, quite a bit. Um, but how much of this could have been done in half the space? Mm-hmm. I think this raises a good point about the future of the cooperative movement, the future of co-ops. You know, a co-op is a business like any other business. I think uh, you and I made that perfectly clear in the first episode uh, when we spoke about profit motive and, and you know, some of the mechanics that goes into, into the business, into the co-op. Um, I think part of the conversation is also, though, uh, in the future, do we necessarily, do we need, as a, as a community, let's say, do we need a cooperative that carries, you know, 40 different kinds of bags and 50 different kinds of jackets or outerwear and 50 different kinds of tents? Or do we need, you know, going back to the roots of what mountain equipment was, do we need a cooperative that allows us to buy mountain equipment at a reasonable price? Uh, and I think when we look at it from that perspective, and we consider the businesses that we frequent on a daily basis, what is it really that I need my local business to do? Do I need a you know massive conglomerate that sells everything, or do I need specialized locations, specialized stores? And I think uh, the co-op movement has generally served... Uh, I think the co-op movement has generally served its membership base uh, on a particular interest, not on a wide variety. Uh, and so for our audience, when considering, if considering a, a, a starting a co-op, uh, you know, one of the things to consider, to, to learn from the experience of Mountain Equipment Co-op is, um, which is one of the, one of the exercises you go through at the foundation of the, of the cooperatives is, what is what we are coming together to serve a particular need? What are the needs that we want to serve? Uh, and when when we look at it from that perspective on a community basis, uh, it, on a community basis, it becomes clearer. When you get to the stage of where Mech was, you know, most recently, uh, it, in my opinion, in my humble opinion, it's no longer serving the needs of the community. It's no longer serving the needs of the members, but it's acting as just another retailer, which is a bit of a shame in my, in my opinion. Um, but I wanted to, uh, um, since we're talking about needs of the communities, what I wanted to ask you, because uh, you, you've done a lot of travels uh, in your organizing work, what other sort of organizations or institutions exist in the community currently that people ought to visit uh, and support as well? Yeah, so I think there's a lot of different ways of even meeting the needs that Mech was aspiring to to accomplish that we don't even necessarily need uh, a, a, a corporate capitalist uh, solution to. And this is one thing that I think a lot of people want to jump on. It's, oh, but there's always a way to make money off of the solution. And I think that there are more efficient, effective, impactful, beneficial solutions that don't need to 
generate waste. And one of the first things that comes to my mind is a tool library. There's a number of them across Toronto. I know that they have an assortment of camping equipment, as an example. But a tent? Yeah. A canoe and paddles and and maybe even an axe or a hatchet or, you know, like that kind of stuff? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. In the same way that I think, you know, the places that I'm camping at are democratized, are, are let's say, run by, by Parks Canada, are maybe private campsites, but are, you know, I, I don't need to own the place that I'm necessarily camping on. I'm not there all the time. I don't, I don't need to have a monopoly on that kind of a space. In the same way that I also, like, I have a tent that I really like. I, ha- I got from Mech in 2011 before I did my, my cross-country bike ride. Uh, it's a two-person tent. I love it. It holds up. You know, how often do I use it? A couple times a year. When I'm not using it, is it being used? No, it's sitting in my closet. You know, so if you if you had a tool library in your community, then you don't need to be able to own these things. I, I think I think this raises a a great point um, since you talk about the the tool library. Um, but I think it raises a great point of the broader uh, broader conversation of democratizing the economy. Uh, because when we when we you know take a step up and talk about tool libraries and all of these other sorts of organizations that exist in the community that do this sort of thing, we're talking about essentially a cooperative economy. We're talking about a store that exists where you go and you don't have to buy the tent for you to be able to go camping. Just like your book library, you can go take out a tent for the weekend and return it which is to your point it creates less waste and there's hundreds i was going to say thousands but there's hundreds of these sorts of things you know car sharing was a popular one uh, not that long ago uh tool libraries like you mentioned and when cooperatives when when um, one of the objectives of red star strategies is to help flourish the cooperative movement here in Toronto, because if we can bring people together to have a conversation around sharing some of these things, you know, tents, whether it's tents, canoes, or, you know, bread and butter uh, and cycling services, whatever it is, everyone's got different skills. But if we can have a conversation or if we can initiate a conversation on how we can come together and share some of these resources versus individualized consumerism essentially where if i want to go camping i have to buy a tent you know in the long run in the grand scheme of things we're creating less waste we're using less resources we're being more green and of course we're building a community of people that have a common interest which is camping or cycling or or what have not personally i'm I'm particularly excited about the sharing economy or about the cooperative economy yeah, likewise. I think I was speaking with a friend of mine the other day who went to Concordia, and Concordia has a cafe that is a student co-op cafe. And it looks identical to every other cafe, save for, for you know a couple little things, at least on the front end. One is you either bring your bring your cup for coffee. Or you do your dishes or you put your dishes in in a bin and they just come and take the bin. 
also because a lot of students spend a lot of time sitting at their tables and doing their homework and whatever else. It is always very busy. The quality is terrific. And people feel a lot better shopping there than they do at the Tim Hortons around the mm. corner. I'm sure it's better quality product as well. Immensely so. And, and that's where I think this idea of having the staff and the customers being able to work together in finding a solution that best meets their needs, I don't think is something that happens in a traditional, let's say, retail setting. Or, or you know, uh, There will always be an element of, I want to sell you the most expensive thing, the best thing. I recently built some computers for some friends of mine. Uh, they they approached me because they know that I like to do you know these kinds of things, and I said I, I absolutely uh, I will build you a computer as if I was building one for myself. I'm not going to buy you the most expensive. I'm not going to buy you the cheapest crap. I'm going to build you something that I would want to have for myself. And I thought, and after I'd said that to my one friend in particular, I thought if I went to a computer store, that wouldn't be the case. Right. You know, if they went to uh, Amazon or if they went to Best Buy or whatever it was, there might be a bit of that, but not really. Mm -hmm. You know, there would still be how can I maximize the sale, maximize the profit, maximize the thing, not maximize the longevity of the product for the person or, you know, to, to meet the needs according to the needs of that person. And... And that, and I really enjoyed that experience, not just of being able to put a computer together. Um, you know, that, that's pretty old hat for me. But That's cool. Um, but being able to do that for a friend because they are not able to do that for themselves felt really good. Mm -hmm. That is not something that can happen if your boss is like, go make money, go make money, go make money. What if I want to make people happy? Right, right. And that was a sense that I always got when I went to Mech is, you know, I would be able to ask people who worked there what would you use? Mm. And they might, and I remember one time I was looking at um, camping stoves when I was at Mech. This was before I, I had done a big bike ride and I wanted to be able to make a hot meal on the go. And I was looking at the stove and I, and I asked a staff member um, about this one stove and they were really upfront with me and they were just like, honestly, it's not the one I'd use. Let me show you. And, and they ended up getting me what they considered to be a better product for cheaper. And I checked online. It actually had better a better rating through other different suppliers or other companies. And I thought that wouldn't happen in other places. Right. I mean, but although on the other side of that, maybe it would at somewhere like Canadian tire, but the staff are going to be indifferent to whether or not the company makes money because they're being screwed over by the system in place anyway. That's a very interesting point you raised there um, because a cooperative exists to serve its members, not to serve shareholders. Or in other words, it doesn't serve the profit motive. And therefore, workers can work based off of, you know, like you say, based off of, I don't want to say so much doing what's right, but selling based on what they like, based on the product that they would use. Uh, they can provide an, an honest answer, honest feedback to the customer without having to worry about trying to maximize the amount of the sale, essentially. Uh, so I want to ask, if you had a time time machine and you can go back to the mid-70s when Mech was first starting, you walk into the room with the people who are saying, hey, this is how we should run things, what do you tell them? To ensure that at a minimum 51% of whatever board structure they choose and whatever membership 
they choose, 51% of the seats in that board are worker representation. Whether it's workers that are directly um, in the board of directors or on the board of directors, or whether it's uh, through representative democracy in which the workers can elect people to represent them on the board, but 51% of the board, uh, you know, and then and then there's a tug of war, 51% is, is too much. Okay, 45, 45, per, for me personally, 45 uh, is the least I would, I would be willing to, you know, give up. Uh, but essentially, the importance of having worker representation on the board is, is, is what I'm trying to get at. How would you, our audience, uh, go back to 1975 and make any changes to the way Mountain Equipment Co-op was set up? Yeah, I'm also curious to know, now that Mech is what Mech is, do you intend on shopping somewhere else? What does that look like? I know that some of the people who've been working on the Save Mech campaigning are looking at building a new co-op, are looking at being able to establish other ways of living those morals and values in a similar, to meet a similar, similar need. So, so yeah, I'm really curious to know how people are going to be engaging with that. Uh, I, I think our audience um, can visit us on Facebook or on Twitter and tweet to us uh, what you're going to do going forward. Are you going to continue shopping at Mac or are you going to find an alternative? And if you have found an alternative, uh, share it with us. Because personally, I do think Mac, um, I mean, it offered great product. And for me, the question is, where do I go if not Mac? Um, you know, the alternatives here in Toronto are slim. Um, and when there are alternatives, they're not necessarily at the price point that Mech was at. And then, of course, no one else is going to carry the Mech brand, which I was, <laughs> which I was fond of. Um, so it, it, it is a tough choice. But then, you know, to your point earlier, do I continue to go to Mech and support what is no longer a, you know, my co-op? Well, to me, in my mind, besides the fact that I'm able to go and hold the product in my hand, how is Mech different than Amazon now? Okay, right, right. You know, call me a cynic, but that's the reality, I think, is is I, I don't... S the people who are invested in the outcome of the thing that I'm buying is now nameless and faceless and interested in my money and not my experience. In, or, or my experience in as far as having a good experience might help me pay more, you know, spend more money, maybe. It's going to keep your shop in there. Uh, it's a tough choice I had. Uh, I am interested in, in what you just mentioned on whether, you know, the Save Mech campaign, uh, where it goes from here. Uh, if if they're starting or if they're planning on starting a new co-op, that would be interesting. I have been really impressed with the way that they have rallied and organized around this, especially coming out of BC. There have been a lot of people very passionate about keeping Mech alive and breathing in the way that, that they see it happening i i am skeptical and i've seen some articles talking to this as well as you know mech has been mech has been dead on its feet for a number of years or the thing that you think mech is and the thing that mech actually is are two very different things but i i am i i'm very wary of people giving up too early at least 
And and I do think there's a lot of potential. I look at this group. There's one on Facebook, the Save Mech group, that has thousands of people in it who, to varying degrees, really want to feel that kind of a connection and and, and buy in accordance with their with their conscience. And I think that that is underrated. And I think that that's going to be something that we're going to see a lot more discussion about in the next little while. And that's why I'm really glad to be able to be able to work with you in this capacity to be able to further that conversation and go mech was mech was i would argue mech was good it could be great it could be it could it could be it could be even better let's talk about how let's talk about what that looks like mm-hmm. uh, i think that's an excellent point um, because it has uh, rallied a certain passion for the cooperative movement uh, which is, uh, I mean, it truly is impressive to watch, uh, but it is very Im- endearing to watch as well. How people are are rallying behind this movement for, you know, what is essentially their democratic system. Uh, it's a store, but it's their democratic system and the representation they do or don't have. Uh, so I'm I'm really interested to see where it goes. I want to do a big thank you to those who are on the Save Mech campaign. I think that the work that they're doing is really fantastic, and I've been very fortunate to be able to follow their journey along and the work that they're doing. Um, so I'm really grateful to them and, and the insights that they've been able to offer. Uh, for more information about Red Star, I would recommend going to redstarstrategies.ca and getting in touch. Uh, follow us on Facebook and Twitter especially as well, and, and make sure that you subscribe to see more episodes of our podcast. Uh, soon we'll be talking about whether or not labor unions serve a purpose in the 21st century, why and why not, and I'm really looking forward to having that discussion because I feel like Will and I are going to have some uh, differing perspectives. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for tuning in, and looking forward to having another episode soon. Thank you, everyone. 